looking forward to the lesson this evening, and I'm going to ask you, it's a little bit different, I didn't pass out an outline tonight, although I intend to either do an outline or probably actually uh, do a PowerPoint for next Sunday night as I make some specific applications of, uh, of this passage. Speaking of the passage, how about opening to Romans chapter 14, and I'm going to spend the entire lesson in Romans 14... And even when I occasionally make reference to another verse or go outside the chapter, I'll come right back. It will strictly be to illustrate a point in Romans 14. I announced this morning, I think I announced earlier in the quarter, and I will say again to begin tonight, that this is a passage um, that in many respects has caused a major controversy within the church over the last especially 25 years wasn't the first evidence of the problem, but it, it really blossomed or flourished or however you want to put it, um, maybe about 25 years ago up till this point, and it still goes on. I'll mention that in a moment. There is a secondary problem that while it has not caused maybe separation or formal withdrawal or that kind of thing, has... I think, reared its head and continues to rear its head in practice, even if someone is not thinking in terms, maybe, of Romans 14 and so forth, it still is something that's practiced, and I'll make that evident here in just a second as well. But the controversy within the church, I think, has grown from a misinterpretation of Romans 14. I will give this caveat to begin with. I think Romans is the hardest book in the New Testament, without exception, um, I think it's much harder, for example, than the book of Revelation. And even though it's not written in quite the difficult language of Hebrews, it is nonetheless more difficult than Hebrews. It's a strange book in one sense that you could read through Romans. It was the first book, the Monday following being baptized on Sunday, that I started reading through. Didn't understand much, but even a surface reading by a novice Christian or one who's not even a member of the church can get a lot out of the book. And yet it will be a book, and for me, 40 years later, it is still a book that I'm going through and getting a lot out of. So it is a very deep book. And Romans 14, probably within the book, is one of the harder chapters, actually bleeding over into the first few verses of chapter 15, is the hardest section, one of the hardest, within the book, and most would count it so. So it comes from a misinterpretation of Romans 14 and maybe a misapplication of some of the things that Paul says. And so this afternoon and next afternoon, we're going to look at the verse or the chapter, and we will consider in closing the verse that is our theme verse for the quarter, and that's Romans 15, verse 2. But let me detail the two controversies. First of all, the passage, I think, is misused and, and causes a major problem. Number one, it's mis misused in this way. By some, some brethren, who wish to allow, if you will, they want to allow or condone, or maybe technically the word would be countenance. And here's what I mean by that. They mean to, to express uh, open approval or sanction, usually of some moral practice that even they themselves consider immoral. I know that sounds strange, but I'll make it clear as I go on. But to openly allow or sanction some moral practice or immoral practice or doctrinal belief. In other words, they may disagree doctrinally. They may think a person is teaching the wrong thing, but they want to 
countenance that. They want to accept that. That is to allow it or even to show, embrace it and show approval for it. Now, while that seems just saying it seems all wrong, once you begin to understand how that's applied, and uh, I'll give you an example, a quick example, and you can easily see. In our society, there is a great problem with the whole institution of marriage. In our lifetimes, those of us that are gathered here have seen marriage that was the norm slip into something that is no longer the norm among many uh, sections or segments of our society. People are not marrying. They are simply cohabiting or living together. They don't appreciate the institution of marriage. They don't sanction it or consider it in the way God meant it to be considered, etc. And if they do marry, divorce is prevalent. About half of our society that gets, gets married, and it wavers, just around half or even more than half, divorce and marry again. Any problem that exists in society bleeds over into the church, and it has. So you get preachers and elders and members, and this is what you had when I first started preaching, and now you even get preachers themselves and elders themselves and so forth who are marrying, divorcing, or their children were marrying and divorcing. And you might take a position that's wrong. The Lord says not to divorce, not to marry again, etc. One exception we all know or understand that that is taught. But now you have a dilemma because your own child is practicing something or you're an elder somewhere and the church is saying, what are you going to do about this child that's divorcing and remarrying? Or you yourself are preaching or you're an elder or you're considered a leading member, etc. And you're divorcing and remarrying, etc., etc. So what happens is people begin to practice it, and usually when people begin to practice it, then someone begins to teach that it's all right. So what do you have? Say so you got a preacher like me, and I've been preaching 40 years. Now my child, and she hasn't, but you understand what I'm saying. Your, your child divorces and remarries. Do you say that's wrong? And stand against it, or do you say, uh, begin to look for a different teaching and embrace it? That's happened. And so when that happens, and you are a major, considered a major leading gospel preacher, teacher within the brotherhood, how does someone else like me then look toward, extend fellowship toward, etc., that teacher who's now teaching what I know is false doctrine? Some brethren have run to Romans 14 and said, Romans 14 teaches, embrace them nonetheless. There's a secondary problem, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, lead to maybe, maybe the major separations. And yet from a personal standpoint, a practical standpoint... It can be just as detrimental, and it's, it's something that I was really talking about this morning in the lesson, of how you approach your brother, how you act toward your brother. Uh, especially if you remember this morning when I was con- talking about the point that mutual support requires a love that is caring. And I went to Galatians 6, and I talked about the personal treatment of a brother whom you consider, obviously, is, quote, overtaken in a fault. So how do I put that in simple language? I think this passage is misused by those who consider themselves to have the correct position. 
I'm right, and I know I'm right because of what the Bible teaches. The correct position regarding some thing, some point of doctrine. Whereby then, a weaker member is compelled, and I want you to understand that, compelled, coerced, you know, talked into, persuaded, whatever, to practice what I believe because I know it to be right, and after all, I'm the stronger one in this situation. I'm the one who has the knowledge. I'm the one who knows. Now, we're going to read some verses that I hope, if you have not really opened your eyes to before, I hope you will see it and see it clearly that are taught in Romans 14. But just understand, the idea here is, I'm right about something. I know I'm right about something. I know the Bible teaches what I believe about something. And so now I approach a weak brother and I impress upon him, if not compel him, change your position and do what I think. Do as I do, is the idea. Sometimes that's the, the script is even flipped, if you will. To say, for the sake of argument, let me say that I am the one who, even though I know I know what I'm doing and I'm right about what I'm doing, let's just say for the sake of argument that you're the one who has the right position and I have the wrong position. Romans 14 would tell you, do as I do, do what I say, so I won't be offended by that. And so flipping the script, really, on what the situation is here, that I really know and I know that I know, but for the sake of argument, let's say that you know and I don't, let's flip the script and you still do what I want you to do because I'll be offended if you don't change so you have both things going on in the brotherhood. And one you can see easily is maybe from the more liberal position. That is, liberal in the sense of freely acknowledging and accepting and embracing everything under the sun. And you could literally use Romans 14 to embrace anything under the sun from that viewpoint. Or the far more ultra-conservative position that says, I know I'm right, so you... Do what I know. Now, I want to say to you that Romans 14 is not teaching either one of those. And it is clear from the language in Romans 14 that Paul is addressing members of the church. And I want you to understand, and you can look down through the passage, and I challenge you to do that. Never, first of all, never does Paul address the weak in this passage. He acknowledges the weak, he talks about the weak, he talks about what the weak think and what they do, and even why they do it. But he never addresses the weak. He addresses, as he does in all this book, and if I said it's the hardest book in the New Testament, you can imagine that the hardest book is going to be written to the strongest people. He addresses the strong. So I think it's important, and we're going to spend the bulk of the time, I mean at least half the time here, on just the first couple of verses. Because if we don't understand that, we don't understand the tone of the passage and it's nonsensical. So let's look at Romans 1, or 14 and verse 1 very carefully. And i got a dry mouth for some reason tonight. I think it's allergies, but anyway, I'm going to drink some water along the way. But look at Romans 14 and verse 1. Paul says, Him that is weak in the faith, now notice, he's addressing the strong and saying to the strong, you strong. Considering him that is weak in the faith, you 
you strong, receive. Now notice the King James says, but not to doubtful disputations. I think it's important for us to really understand the language of verse 1. So let's talk about it. You have to understand that, you have to begin by understanding the construction of this command, and that's what it is in verse 1. You are strong. What does it mean to be strong? Well, it means you know, you know the truth, you have the right positions. He will even say that in the, in the passage. He'll talk about what he, for example, knows, and it's the truth. So you are strong because you know the truth. And there is another brother who is weak because he does not. So really what the passage is addressing is not who's right and wrong. It's accepted up front. It's like the, the statement in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It just accepts that you understand that. There is a God and he is the creator. Well, Romans 14, verse 1 just accepts that you understand there are people who are stronger, at least on a point of doctrine, because they know the truth as opposed to others who don't understand it. So if you are strong, this is what he's telling you to do, to first of all, receive the weak. What does that mean? Well, obviously the weak here is a term that's used for being sick, diseased, Impotent in the sense of crippled in some way or handicapped in some way. That's the term we're using. And in context, it has to do with a doctrine. This person does not know, therefore they are weak, they are disabled, they are impotent, etc. with respect to that doctrine. Receive them. This is that term that you always hear me say when I'm talking about the idea of receiving, embracing in fellowship, a, a teacher who's teaching the truth, Second John verse 10. And it's like that in John 19 when John said to, or when Jesus said to John, Behold your mother. And from that point on, the disciple received him into his home and unto himself. That's the word that's used here. Now think about that for a moment. The strong are being told to take unto themselves as though it's a close association. Bring them into your home. Embrace them in that familial way. That's what the strong are being told to do toward the weak. Notice, that would be as opposed to, here's someone who's weak, and I don't want to be around them, I don't want to have anything to do with them, because they may bring me down. No, just the opposite. Form a relationship with this weaker brother or sister. Bring them unto yourself. Receive them. Have fellowship with them. Bring them unto you. Like taking somebody into your home. But notice it gives this warning. But not for the wrong purpose. So not to doubtful disputations. What does that mean? Well, if you look at this terminology, it's debate terminology. And it has to do, like when you see Wes and I up here, we're debating, and let's say Wes is making a presentation, making arguments about something, and you see me back here writing, some of you mimic me pretty well doing that, <laughs> but you see me back here writing, I'm thinking of arguments. I'm reasoning why this is not right. I'm writing things down so I can make the argument. Well, here's what he's saying here. You're not taking this person in. Embracing them, getting closer to them, we would say, you know, bonding with them, all that kind of thing. You're not doing that 
so you can dig into their head and work around with the way they think. Now, that's the way some people approach it. If I can get closer to this guy, I can convince him to think like I think, do like I do. Paul is saying, I command you to bring them to you, to yourself, but not for that. And if you don't understand that, then I think you miss everything that's being taught here. Because if we don't do something for the right reason, it really doesn't matter why we do something. And it really doesn't matter the end result. If I'm not doing it for the right reason, I'm wrong. Now, the other person might advantage from that, but that doesn't matter. I'm wrong if I don't do it with the right motive. So Paul is telling you the motive to have. So you extend friendship to someone. You... Give acceptance to someone. You show them you accept them. But not for the ulterior motive of just debating the individual, just arguing with them, just getting them to think like you think. I think we have to understand that. And I know I've belabored the point, but it's important that we get that. So him that is weak in the faith, receive, but not to doubtful disputation. Now, In verses 2 through 6, and I want you just to look at those verses with me carefully. Let's read them. For one believes that he may eat all things. Another who is weak only eats vegetables. Let not him that eats, that is everything, despise him that does not eat. And let not him that eats not judge him that eats. For God has received him. Now, I want you to notice what happens here in verse 2. You've got two sides of a position. One person thinks, eat only vegetables. Another person thinks, eat everything. And you have every combination. We have people that believe in eating everything but pork, let's say. We have people who believe in eating everything but meat, let's say. I mean, we have all kinds of beliefs. And so Paul is addressing two major positions in that day. The the vegetarian, as we would call them today, or vegan, I guess, is the more popular term, versus the meat eater, or the one that eats anything and everything. Now, we're not even considering what's right and wrong here. You notice that. But Paul is saying you have people with different positions. Now, let's read verses 3 and following, or uh, verses 4 and following, and come back to this. Who are you that judges another, uh, another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he says, yes, and he shall be holding up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day the same. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day regards it unto the Lord, and he that regards not the day to the Lord he does not regard it. He that eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he that eats not to the Lord, he eats not. And he gives God thanks. So you're looking at two sides of a couple of positions that existed, very real positions, in Paul's day. So we're talking about the kind of thing under discussion. And that's important. Go back to where we began this lesson. Are we talking about major doctrinal errors? I'll give you some that are in the church. Doesn't matter what denomination you belong to. Would you consider that a major doctrinal teaching? Doesn't matter if you baptize for forgiveness of sins or you do not. Would you consider that a major doctrinal teaching? Doesn't matter if you believe in marriage for life 
or you believe in you can marry, divorce, and remarry. And you get my point. Doesn't matter if you believe you must be married to live together, or if you can just live together. Doesn't matter if you you believe you can be married to a man or to a woman. All of those teachings are being embraced when we could look elsewhere in the New Testament and we could find teaching that no, that kind of immorality, 1 Corinthians 5, can't be accepted. No, that kind of heretic or false teacher, Titus 3, cannot be accepted. So we're talking about that. But we're talking about a choice an individual makes and the reason why he makes it to either be a vegetarian or a meat eater. To esteem, that is, hold in regard a particular day higher than other days, or to consider every day the same. Now, I ask you this question, really and truly, and I want you to honestly answer this to yourself. Really and truly, if someone here is a preacher, let's say, let's start with that, and a preacher is teaching You do not have to be baptized for forgiveness of sins. How many of that, how many of us, really and truly, how much is this church affected by that teaching? And I think we have to understand completely. Because now we have someone who is standing up and teaching supposedly what we believe, and he's teaching false doctrine that is going to cause people to lose their souls. Because he's not teaching the truth. Now, really and truly, if I decide on my own, in my home, etc., etc., to eat only vegetables, how much does that... And I'm not coming here saying you have to only eat vegetables, you see. I'm not teaching that as a command from God. It's just what I'm doing. How much does that affect you? answer is not none. It's a personal choice I make. The truth is, I changed my dietary laws for me. My position for me and what I'll eat and what I won't eat. And about all you really know about that is that I don't go to the store and buy as many Reese's bars as I used to buy. But I don't talk that over with you. Because truthfully, it has nothing to do with you. And nor do you come to me, some of you every now and then mention something. But for the most part, I couldn't go around the room right now and tell you what you, except for Wes, we know he's got to be gluten-free now. But I don't go around the room and say, oh, I know what you eat and what you believe in eating and what you don't. Because it just doesn't affect us. That's what we're talking about here. So you see, Paul is dealing with people who believe something. Now I want you to notice something very important about verses 2 through 6. Different people believe different things for different reasons. And that's just a fact. We have to keep in mind and try to understand why, or no, let me say it like this. Try to understand that point. Different people do different things for different reasons, and many of them do not affect me at all. If a person eats only vegetables for whatever reason he eats them, he chooses to do that, it doesn't affect me. Unless he wants to begin to stand up on Sunday and teach everybody is going to hell because they eat meat. Then it's a problem. And so with days that are regarded, etc., etc. 
But you notice what Paul says in this passage. He speaks to the, to the strong. And he says to the strong that the one who is doing what he's doing, he's either eating or not eating, he's regarding a day, not regarding the day, he's doing it because, in verse 2, he believes it. Notice that in verse 2. For one believes that he may eat all things. One believes he may only eat vegetables. I need to understand that a person believes something, that's why he's doing what he's doing. He believes it. It's his faith. It's not a matter. See, I can get caught up and only focus on I'm right and he's wrong. But what I have to understand is that I am, I am the strong brother who understands the truth from the Word of God. But that this fellow brother may believe what he's doing, have just as much faith about what he's doing, even if he's wrong. He may believe it as strongly as I believe it. Second point. In verses 3 and 4, Paul makes the clear point that he does what he does in submission to his Lord. He considers himself his Lord's servant, and he submits to the Lord. And so that's why he gets into this in verses 3 and 4. Don't look down on, don't despise is the terminology the King James used, and it has to do with regard for another, how you look at another person's value. Don't despise him that doesn't do what you do, to paraphrase. And, verse 4, who are you to to judge, condemn another man's servant? I want you to look clearly at the end of verses uh, 3 and 4, because this is interesting. You have different positions here, and no doubt some position is going to disagree with where you are. I would venture to say pretty much everybody in this room has made a decision whether they're going to be a vegetarian or a meat eater. Okay? But I want you to notice what he says at the end of 3 and 4. He speaks of one who eats, one who doesn't eat, speaking of meat. And he says, God has received him. Verse 3. Isn't that interesting? Because the word for receive there is the same one we just saw commanding us to receive him. God takes him in, God accepts him, God takes him unto himself, and the point is, why don't you? Because, you see, you don't know why he believes he must be only a vegetarian. Or, if you hold the other position, why he believes he can eat meat. You just don't know. But he believes it. It is his faith. And what I should be doing, and I want you to understand, first I should be doing, is not considering whether he's right or he's wrong, but first be considering his heart, his intention, how God views him in the matter, no matter which side he falls on. And God has received it. We'll go again, verse 4. Who are you that judges someone? Because, notice... Yea, he shall be holden up, at the end of verse 4, he shall be holden or held up, for God is able to make him stand. Let me explain what I think Paul is saying here. Why do we believe what we believe? You ponder that for a second while I get another swallow of water. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do you believe what you believe? 
And as a Christian, especially the strong Christian, because that's who's being addressed here, don't you really believe what you believe because you think your Lord commands it? And here would be the hard question. Why do you in turn then not afford your brother to do the same? Why do you believe what you believe? I'll ask you a harder question. Are there doctrines, are there positions, even about things like diets and days that you've ever changed your position about? Because you came to understand something God taught because you saw more, you looked deeper, you dug further than you had before. And if you change your position and now your faith is strong with regard to that thing, but it took time to get there, why do you not afford your brother the same time? And I think that's what Paul is teaching. You see... I might be 40 years into being a Christian. I am, this past February. And I might have started 40 years ago on an afternoon on my front porch reading Romans and not knowing hardly anything about it. And now, I know what's in there. I don't know everything about everything, but you know, I've been through it a number of times, deeply. I'm way past where I was 40 years ago. But really and truly, the faith that I gained from that first reading on that first day, I would have wanted it respected. Because it was mine. I had read my Lord's teaching, and whatever little bit I was able to internalize, I did it for Him. And I wanted other people to respect it. Just as I do now, with how far I am. And I believe that's what's being commanded here. Now let's look at verses 7 through 9. And don't worry, we're not trying to get through everything tonight. Remember, there's a second part of this. But we have to set up the opening remarks. So let's look at verses 7 through 9. None of us lives to himself, Paul says, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. So whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Verse 9. For to this end, that is the fact that we live to the Lord, we belong to the Lord. To this end, Christ both died and rose, and or died and rose and revived, came back to life. That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. I'm going to make some simple comments because I think these, these verses are some of the easiest in the chapter to understand. But let's say this. Observation number one. Our perspective it is how we look at things that we're talking about here, doctrinal differences, etc. Our, our perspective is not to be right or be wrong. Now, I've said that several ways tonight, but I'm going to make it clear here. If there's anything that I've seen that's consistent in the Church of Christ since I've been part of it, not even become part of it until I was nearly grown, but if there's anything I've seen that's consistent in the Church of Christ is that if you have members who care about what's right and wrong, and you're really going to have to listen to me closely on this one, you have too many of those members who care too much 
about what's right and what's wrong. Now, I know the reaction, the response. Michael, you can't care too much about what's right and what's wrong. That's true. But let me tell you what happens. Members of the church get caught up, all caught up, in what's the right position about this, the right position about that. And man, we can get the most diligent, dedicated, dogmatic that we ever get about being right about a position. I could throw out a list that would choke a horse. But a list that would include, can you marry, divorce, and get remarried for any reason? Should you wear a covering, an artificial covering on your head if you're a woman or not? Never wear one if you're a man or not. Should you take the Lord's Supper on Sunday nights or not? And the list will go on and on and on and on. There's a right position about all those things. There's a truth. On some of those things, I still hold the same position I held the first few weeks that I became a Christian. On some of those things, I changed my position along the way and I still hold the place to where I changed. And on some of those things, I've gone back and forth a couple of times. And I suspect... That's where many, if not most, members of the church are. That's not how we think. I go to someone because they're wrong. And I tell them what's right. And it's right because I know it to be right. And God says it so it's right. And you need to do it because it's right. And I know it's right. And that becomes my responsibility as the strong Christian to go to the weak Christian and correct them because what I know is right. Now, do you see that in this passage? Do you see in verse 1, that being my overall initiative directive to embrace my brothers and sisters that are weak? I don't. I see the idea of brothers who understand the reason why someone is weak on a point. Go back to my own example. I have short hair, and I keep it short. But a lot of you know that when I was running around like, a, like an idiot, as I always say as a teenager, one of the things that I loved, you should understand that, I loved it, was my long hair. I loved, I loved tying it back in a ton- ponytail. I loved being able to reach back there and take a strand of hair, bring it all the way over my head and stick it in my mouth. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. True. It's true. I loved it. I studied with Dale for a year and three or four months. And we had talked about all kinds of problems that I had. We talked about all kinds of things the Bible said and was. And and we talked about God and whether there was a God. And never once did we get around to discussing my long, flowing, beautiful locks. I was baptized with those long, flowing, beautiful locks. Now you might say, man, Dale should have corrected you on that. Well, should he? Is that where I was? 
No, Dale was embracing me, taking me in. And when I obeyed the gospel, I was his brother. And my math teacher at high school, who happened to be another gospel preacher, same thing, just embraced me, took me in, I was his brother. I did read through Romans. And within a couple of weeks, I started reading 1 Corinthians and got to chapter 11. It's a shame for a man to have long hair. Whoa. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's pretty plain. And I'm like, oh, no. But I looked at it, and I studied it, and then I went to Dale. Dale said, well, what did you read? You know, Dale was always cool. So what did you read? What did it say? I went down to the barber shop and cut my hair. And here's the point. Why did I believe what I believed? I had a background. I came from a certain place. I believed certain things. I knew certain things. I didn't know other things. No one could expect me to be anywhere in life except where I was. And I had to get to the point of understanding what I believe, and it's my faith, you see, I understand what I believe 1 Corinthians 11 teaches, and so I obey it to my Lord. And that's where it had to get to. Now, I've seen other times over the years, a couple of them in particular, that stand out. Somebody like me came through the doors. Somebody like me, a guy, had long, long hair. Somebody not like Dale made it a point to go up to them and make sure they understood. 1 Corinthians 11 says it's a shame for you to have long hair. In one case, the poor boy that was being told that had about as many moral, you know, etc. problems that I had. And his problems, drug use and, you know, crimes and all this kind of thing, were way, way, way more important at the moment than talking about his long hair. He's like, you know, if this is that kind of place, maybe I need to find somewhere else because I need help. Let people believe what they believe to the Lord. It's far more important to teach somebody, and Dale had taught me this, you see, in that year and a half we were together. You go to the Bible, you read the Bible, you find out what the Bible says, you do what the Lord teaches you to do. That's why it was easy. Dale, do I have to cut my hair? Is that what this is saying? It was the same question I've been asked, I don't know how many times, about baptism and everything else. What does the Bible say? Let me talk. And I talk. What is it telling you you need to do? Let me talk, and I talk. Then what do you think you need to do? And that was the sum total of his correcting me, quote-unquote, on that point of doctrine. In other words, he let me obey the Lord for myself. Isn't that what we're trying to teach people? Isn't that what God is expecting? So no man lives to himself and he doesn't die to himself. He lives to the Lord. Now let's close out by looking at a couple more verses and then we'll come back and back into the second half of it next week. So start reading me, with me in verse 10. We'll read down through verse 13 and close. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you set at naught, at nothing, your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. 
and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block on occasion to fall in his brother's way. I think there are two things that are under primary concern here, and I want to name them both, and this is where we'll pick back up. Number one is this. I'm no one's judge, only Jesus is. No one stands before me in judgment, they only stand before Jesus. Ultimately and finally, no one comes to me as a final board of approval or condemnation. They go before Jesus on judgment day. And I need to understand that and practice that and help people to understand that. And if I can get someone to understand how important it is for you to go to Jesus' commands and understand for yourself what Jesus commands you to do, how important that is, and allow you, afford you the right to obey what you believe because Jesus says it and still receive you, accept you, then I think I've obeyed the sentiment here. But secondly, as a congregation, and we will talk about this, as a congregation, I have to be concerned, notice with verse 13, the stumbling block, the occasion to fall. So it comes back to that question. Remember we, early in the lesson, talked about if I choose to be a vegetarian, If tomorrow I decide that, and I go to the grocery store and I buy all vegetables, and when Montel comes in, (laughs) I tell Montel, hey, guess what? I'm a vegetarian. I'm only going to eat vegetables from now on. I know what Montel is going to say. Fine, you do that. I'm eating meat. But if I choose to do that, it's my right, it's my belief, it's my reasoning why. It really doesn't have anything to do with anybody else, not even Montel. However, when I begin to do something with my beliefs that cause someone else to stumble or entraps them, puts them in a corner is the idea, you see, pushes them into a corner, you've got to do what I think, what I believe, because if you don't, you're wrong or you make me offended. Now I've pushed them into a corner. Or maybe I decide that doctrine like eating vegetables that really doesn't make a difference one way or the other, but I decide it does. Now I take it from that individual choice to this doctrinal position for the church. You have to only eat vegetables because that's what's right. And now the individual is in a corner. Do I stay a member of this church or do I run from this dogmatic position that I just don't see? And when we have that, then as a church we start having to deal with these things. Other than that, it's your belief, your position. I'm going to close with that, and there are probably a lot more questions maybe than anything's been settled. If there are, please feel free to come to me with the question. Say, Michael, include this. I'd like for you to think about that as you do the next sermon. Because next Sunday, I'm going to go through the end of this where I think Paul draws conclusions. And I'm going to make some applications 
further than we've made, but maybe some more difficult applications uh, beyond what we've done tonight. So I'll leave, with, leave you with that. It's a difficult passage, no question. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, but you want to obey God tonight. You believe in Him and you'll confess your belief in Him. Tonight you want to change your life and just live your life for Jesus, like we were talking about. If you'll be baptized, your sins will be washed away, you'll be a child of God. Maybe you're here and you've done that, and yet there's something in your life that you know needs to be put behind you and you just kind of want to start all over again. We'd be glad to pray together with you. Please come while we stand and sing.